Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're going to go on a journey of 20 years in Nepal and hear the story of how Will Smith and his family got to no place left. So for us, it started with a calling to go to Nepal uh, back in 99. And uh, my wife and I uh, were, were actually well into my career. I was actually a firefighter, paramedic. That was my, that was my career. I was very happy, felt very successful. And in 99, uh, God put uh, Nepal on our heart. And I think it had a lot to do with our natural interests. We were rock climbers and hikers and everything. And that kind of collided with our discipleship in the Word of God, where we saw um, God's heart for the nations. And we just kind of had a feeling that there probably weren't a lot of believers in a place like Nepal, where all those mountains were, and we love the mountains and that kind of thing. So it started there, and um, we didn't really know what to do with it. We didn't know any missionaries. And wouldn't you know it, uh, about a week or two later, uh, a, a missionary, the first missionary we'd ever met, actually, came to visit our church and guess where he was from? He was from Nepal. And uh, so we, we, we saw that as an answer to prayer. We went and spoke to them and uh, asked him what we should do. Like, what would the next step would be? And he said, you just need to come over. So we did. And this was in 99. We had two little kids at the time. We went over in 99 and uh, worked in a medical clinic. My, the extent of my mission uh, competency was, was how to take a blood pressure at that point in time. That's all I knew how to do. But God had us hooked for life. And so I came back, resigned from the fire department, and the mission agency of our denomination said I needed to go to college. So I went to college and rushed through that as fast as I could. Uh, And then they said I had to go to seminary. So I did that. And luckily, there was a two plus two program where I spent two years on the seminary and then finished my degree overseas. So uh, that made it a little easier. And we had two more kids in that during that time period. So we went to the field with four kids in 2005. And actually, 9-11 happened while we were going to uh, Bible college. And it gave us it caused us to reconsider where we might go. And we started to think about the Muslim world. And the Lord led us to go to Bangladesh. So we actually served in Bangladesh for three years in the city of Dhaka and um, and really learned a lot. We learned a lot about how to show the gospel with Muslims, saw numerous Muslims come to faith and become baptized. I'll be perfectly honest, we were at a bit of a loss on how to disciple them, but we learned a lot about evangelism. We came back uh, after our first term, and, uh, and, and, and God opened a very clear door for us to go to our first calling, our first love, which was Nepal. And so we did that in 2009. And it was kind of like we had a fresh start, which was really good for us, I think, in that point in time. And, and so we, we landed there in 2009, uh, landed on a wonderful team, and landed in what I would call a mentor-rich environment. There were just a lot of great mentors around that were speaking about this thing called movement. And uh, about that time, someone put a book in my hands that you might be familiar with called Movements That Change the World. And, uh, <laughs> and so, Steve, your writing has had a huge impact on us through the years. And then God is starting to think toward, you know, we can't really make an impact if we don't do things in a way that, that are conducive for movement. And so that planted a seed. And then a lot of my mentors poured into me. And we, we tried to be good stewards of what we were taught and began to practice those things. 
What what was it like, uh, you know, initially in Bangladesh and then in Nepal? I mean, totally different languages. But what was it like just as a family, settling a family of four into those two environments? Right. Well, Bangladesh was was it, it's it's considered one of the most intense places to live in the world. Like if you look at a Lonely Planet guide and they describe it, they'll describe it as the most intense city you can live in. That's the language they use, and that's so true. I mean, just the 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 concept of personal space is an issue all around South Asia. Um, there's a lot of invasion. There's no concept of privacy at all. People are very intrusive. And so, um, but you know what? That's just the way they live. They live that way in their normal life. There's nothing personal. Like it's not uh, meant to be offensive, but it, all of that caused cultural strain, of course, that we had to get used to and process appropriately, but it caused a lot of strain. I was finishing up my MDiv my first few years. So that caused some pressure. I was learning a new language. I was trying to learn the culture of a new team uh, and trying to navigate like what's going on here. You know, the, every team has its issues. And so this team, like like any other team, had, had the things they were going through. And so as a brand new missionary, I think we had a real idealized idea of, of what who these people were. And we, we went, well, we found out really quick, they're human just like the rest of us. We, we, we all have our issues. And so we were navigating that. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, we learned a lot during that time. And uh, I, I considered it almost like an extended training uh, opportunity for what God really had for us, which always on our heart, it was, it was, it was Nepal. Even before we knew the language of no place left Nepal, that's really what God had called us to. Wow. So what unfolded in Nepal when you got there? Well, we kind of had a redo, if you will. We had to go through all of the missionary orientation again. We learned a new language, and uh, we were kind of left alone for that first eight eight to 12 months and where we just immersed in the language. And then, uh, but, but once we reached a certain language level, uh, man, it's like a starting gun went off. And uh, I integrated onto a team that was the tribal team of Nepal, and uh, that's where I was mentored uh, by a, a man named Tracy. And uh, his Tracy and his wife, Lucinda, took us under their wing. And they modeled uh, all of this training that was we'd never seen before. We'd read about, we'd heard about people doing it, but we'd never actually seen it. And so they took us in their field, into their field and modeled it. And it was interesting. Tracy was a very humble guy. And he said, oh, you can do this. Just take the module and do it. And I said, you know what, Tracy, it would really help me if I could just watch you model the whole thing. There'll be time for that. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the second time I went with him, I took a couple of modules. The third time I went with him, we cut it about half and half. And then it just started to sink in. It was just classic model assist, watch and launch, you know. And um, and after that, I, there was no looking back. Uh, I, I would train anything that would listen to me. And uh, on evangelism, and who's, discipleship. who's in the room when you're training? Who are you training? At that time, he was focused on the uh, on the like Taru people of southern Nepal. So we would spend time down in the flatlands of Nepal. But we, he also loved to work with the Garung people who were in the mountains. So we had a nice variety of the kind of people we would train. And uh, he was seeing some real fruit from that. And it was just uh, such a privilege to learn from him. And are they uh, uh, Hindu background? Um, so the the Garung people are kind of considered animist. I think they would identify with Buddhism if pressed. 
um, but they're mostly animist uh, by nature. Taru is the same. I think it's more of a tribal group. This was the tribal team, actually, that I was a part of. And so were you training with translation? Because wouldn't they have their tribal languages? Yeah, we did actually. We we would we would use translators, and that that turned out to be a great discipleship uh, opportunity. Actually, uh, we'd see translators really transformed through some of the training we were doing. And what impact did you see for the training? Wow. Well, I mean, I think what we saw was this um, people being envisioned and equipped to actually share the gospel message with their friends and family. So we began to see the spread of the gospel, not just through, I mean, I love sharing the gospel, love doing that, but we'd actually hear reports of how it was spreading through their own families. And it was, and that's beautiful, but it was really beautiful to see them come together and and be the body of Christ and actually watch them worship in their homes, uh, in their communities, and to know that was happening even when we weren't present. And, And that, that was wonderful to see that happen. And of course, we're, we're, we're training them to multiply and to pass that on to other people. So in time, we would see these churches um, actually become second and third generation churches as we taught them to give away, you know, in the same way we gave them these trainings to actually pass that on. So we did see some multiplication. It was, it was such a pleasure. And what, what did you learn through that sort of first phase in Nepal? Wow. So I think what I learned was a few things Um, through a lot of Bible study, again, with my mentors and peers, learn the idea of, of, um, you know, the core missionary task, the idea that there's a there's a progression, there's a pathway we see in the ministry of Jesus and also in the ministry of Paul, where you have this, um, you know, this entry uh, into a into a new field, um, evangelism, discipleship, church planning and leadership development, and then a return to that first generation fruit to see those guys, um, you know, equipped and supported and uh, so the, definitely that pathway uh, became very clear, and that was super helpful because a lot of times when people would come to faith, for example, if I go back to Bangladesh, I wasn't really clear on what to do next. Uh, one of the things that was really helpful was knowing the quality of a good tool, you know, uh, by, by looking at, you know, is it biblical? Is it reproducing? Uh, is, it, is it effective in the local context? And does it get you to the next step? That was a powerful tool for me uh, that helped me kind of hone down. If I have one shot to train somebody, what am I going to use to invest in them? Because what's at stake is multiplication. If I if I try to promote a tool that doesn't have the have a history of multiplying or have the ability to multiply, you know, I'm really um, becoming a bottleneck, not thinking that through. So that was big. The last thing I would say would just be a vision for completion. Uh, You know, when I first started, my idea of success was a lifetime. It was faithfulness. It was like just pure sacrifice. Just go and be there and live there and get your missionary merit badges for uh, the longevity on the field and language learning and, you know, number of times you got dengue fever and all those things. But, you know, and that's part of it. And, And if that's what God calls you to, by all means, you know, that's what you that's what we do. But just to really see you know, Paul uh, in in Romans 15, you know, say, I fully proclaim the gospel and there's no longer any place for me. And the idea that he would move on and and leave 
the work with other people, that was that was a game changer. And I thought, okay, this might be just another season in a long life of reaching the nation. So that's exactly what ended up happening. So I love pastors. I love talking to pastors. I love hearing their stories. And through those, you know, through those deep conversations, I would get invitations to train. Um, you know, I trained thoroughly throughout the Baptist network there. Uh, that was my first stop. Uh, that's where I really I learned how to train was doing kind of a campaign of training across Nepal. What I learned from that, though, was it wasn't multi-phase and it wasn't discipleship uh, obedience based in the sense of, you know, multiple touches. So that was just a kind of a rookie mistake for me that where I, I look back on that and it was a good campaign. You know, I did a lot of vision casting. Um, I've actually heard through the grapevine that that those same people have been more open to movement principles by the people who've come behind me than they were for me, for myself. Mm. So that wasn't a wasted effort. But I did make a change in my strategy and began to only train when I knew I could have multiple touches. And so um, I, you know, one of my favorite seasons of life was when I had two training hubs on, on either side of the country in the, the beginning of the month, I would go to one out, out to the West. And in the middle of the month, I would go to the one in the East and uh, spend three, four days. And then I would come back to Kathmandu and just network and, you know, and be with my family. And so through those multiple touches and through, you know, get, having accountability and asking them what problems they were having and problem solving and adding new training, that's where we really saw uh, fruit and multiplication. So what I noticed was I was holding a people group list of 172 people groups. And although we had some momentum among certain people groups, there were a number of people groups that still weren't being targeted. And while people knew what to do, they didn't really know, they didn't have a vision for new targets. And they didn't have really a way to know objectively if these target targets were being engaged. Um, and so we made a shift. I started to think, what is the greatest investment I could make in these multiple networks, even organizations? And so uh, we decided to put on a conference called a Strategic Leadership Conference. And uh, my goodness, we invited probably 85 or more Nepalis, and, and we might have had 10 to 15 from our own organization there as we just came together to, to, to partner in this project. And um, at that training, what we did was we didn't really emphasize tools and training so much because that was already happening through the four fields uh, rollout. And so they came and it was amazing. We had we did a lot of vision casting on God's heart for all people. And the probably the most pivotal moment in the entire training was when I held up a people group list of all the people groups in Nepal. And I held it. And so we did the research. We had it in writing. And I said to them, I said, hey, before I hand this out, I know it's full of mistakes. So just get over it. Uh, that's your job to help me make it better. But this is good enough for us to know that the task is not completed in Nepal. That there are entire people groups that have not a single believer and not a single person with an intentional strategy to reach them. And I almost get tearful now saying it. But in that moment, I wept. And the people in that room said, they turned to each other and they said, why is it that there's an American weeping over our people groups and we're not weeping for the people groups right in front of us? And that's the moment people started looking at that people group list and they started to discover 
hey, I know that people group. You mean they're actually unengaged? Well, I said, that's the global understanding based on the research I've done. And they said, well, by all means, we can engage that people group. And we started to see people groups one after another get engaged. And, and, on, and, and I treated them as, as uh, strategy leaders, and we might call them strategy coordinators. Because at that point in time, it was they owned the responsibility of understanding who they were, where they are. They owned the responsibility of understanding what were going to be the best tools um, to engage them particularly gospel be good, but even the story sets they would choose uh, might be different depending on the culture. Uh, they would own the training rollout. You know, how are you going to uh, facilitate movement? Is it going to be zero to one? That might be necessary. And then train the first believer, or it might be, or it might be, um, you know, uh, some networking involved. Um, I would send that. I would send out, um, we, we had this category, they had this uh, team member category called journeyman. It was like a two-year commitment. These guys right out of college and they would go out and, and I would send them out just simply, I would say, go find them, just go find them and confirm they actually live there and go start asking around if there's any believers. And one cool story is we had this one guy go out and he actually found that there were believers within a people group that were considered unengaged. That was the global understanding. But God was way ahead of us, as he usually is, and and had actually brought someone to himself. And so he trained uh, this small group of believers. But this um, this young man, he, he didn't miss a beat. He trained them and he pulled out that people group list. And he said, you know what? The world believes that there's no Christians among you. And they were shocked. They were like, really? Well, you can tell them that there are some. And he says, well, look at this list. Here's the list of other 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 people groups that we don't think there's believers. And they looked at the list and they said, oh, well, that's true. There's probably no believers among that people group. <laughs> and he said, well, hey, what do you say I train you to share the gospel? Well, let's take a trip and we go engage them. And so think about that. A people group this young man thought was unengaged were engaged, but he mobilized them to reach an actual unengaged people group. And that's a guy in his early 20s. I want to go back to that moment where you're holding up the people group list and you're deeply moved and obviously God is moving in the room. What did God do to bring that moment about? What were the ingredients that got you to that point? It was vision from the word of God. It was to really believe and take seriously that God cares about all of these people groups. And that Jesus has paid for them on the cross. He's paid the price, and it's our job to go get them. And the question is, how are we going to go get them if we don't know who they are or where they are? And that's strategy. How can we take that seriously if we don't make it our business to do the hard work of figuring out who they are and where they are? And to steward an entire strategy that has an envision in mind, which is exit. It's, it's, it's local ownership. It's handing over this task. I don't want to do a single thing for anybody that they can't do for themselves. The moment they can do it, I'm gone. I'm gone. Because if we do that, we are, we're, we're, we're stealing an opportunity for them to grow and to grow into that priesthood. And often we leave way before they think they're ready, but that's okay. We do that also. And it takes a lot of discipline from everyone involved. And 
honestly, it doesn't feel good. I mean, I remember, you know, back, let's think back to Bangladesh. I was just starting to get good at evangelism to Muslims when God called me to Nepal, right? Now, I was happy to go to Nepal, but, um, but you know, there was a death to self there. It's like, man, can I just keep doing what I'm good at? And it's the same way with training. You know, and I was just starting to get good at doing those four fields trainings. And now God's calling me to be some more of a strategy leader and let other people do it and stand out of the way and build team. So I would say that how we got to that moment was that I would also say it's a recognition that that I can't do it myself, you know, and that this task is much bigger than I am. And so we needed to be willing to kind of broadcast and campaign for God's heart for all people and to make the invisible visible. That's the big problem. We see it in scripture, but we've not really gotten down to the part where we've seriously made an effort of making the invisible visible in terms of who are they and where are they? And then walk down that progression of strategic leadership. You know, what tools are you going to use? How are you going to train it? How are you going to know you're succeeding? And what kind of team can you count on to, to surround yourself with that you can mobilize them to the targets you're never going to be able to get into? So, so team building is not so much about, about, because it's pioneering by nature, it's not so much about building a big team for the sake of building a big team. You build a big team so that people have a window into your life to take on the targets you're never going to be able to get your hands on. And how did you get to your place where you discovered, you know, for you there was no place left? And it was time to exit. So like 72 districts. And in the time, no place left, the way we defined it was, was multiple streams of healthy and reproducing churches to the fourth generation in every district, 72 districts, reaching every people group. And that was the that was the kind of the overall no place left for Nepal. And brother, I wanted to be there until that was a reality in every single district. And God didn't allow that. Um, we we got to a point where we mobilized, we empowered, we equipped, we mobilized uh, four different Nepali leaders to take on district adoptions. And so they did that and we served them in that. And, 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 and an important thing to point out was we never defined the target for them. We asked them to pray about the target. We asked them to tell us where God was leading them. I remember we had a Nawari brother <clears throat> at that strategic leadership conference who's a native to Kathmandu, and he chose a district way out in East Nepal. And I said, why in the world did you choose that district? I know you're not from there, and that's a hard place. And he says, well, my guess is, he says, there's a high concentration of unengaged people groups there, and my guess is this district's being overlooked by people who are going all the way to the Far East. They're not stopping here in Kotong, was the district. And so he adopted Kotong. But um but for us, where we got to no place left, it was a couple of things. One thing was we felt a sense of restlessness that to this day is hard to explain. Um, Carol and us got to this place where, um, well, I guess I can't explain it in some ways. We had built an organizational team, okay, with our organization. We had 172 people groups, and we got to a point where we, these guys were so competent that we decided to break up our people group list between Hindus, Muslims, and tribals. And so I gave away those segments and asked them to be the strategy leaders. Well, then I just became a support to them. I never, I didn't have a people group list anymore that I was personally stewarding as a strategy leader. 
So, uh, but that's not the most exciting and that's exciting. And I'm happy for those people. What's most exciting is, is the local ownership. So I had one brother that was focused on a district called um, Sindapulcho. And he, he's very much a pastor, but he also has an apostolic calling. And I remember I asked him one day, I said, his name's Raji. And I said, Raji, when are you going to be finished with Sindapulcho? He'd been working there for years. And he was almost offended, I asked. He said, these are my friends. I'm never going to be finished. I'll go up there for the rest of my life. They're like family to me. And I kind of laughed and I said, I understand. But I took him to I took him to Paul uh, in, in, in Romans, Romans 15. And I said, I mean, apostolically, like, when are you going to be finished being catalytic? When are you going to be finished giving them, equipping them to finish the task in Sindapulcho? And the wheels started turning. And I started walking with him through that process. And he became a strategy leader. He adopted that district. And about three years later, he came to me and we talked. I coached him all throughout that. And he came to me and he says, Will, I think we're there. We have multiple streams of healthy churches, and I do believe they're reaching every people group there. So we went up there and began to visit these churches. And sure enough, I mean, the gospel had really spread throughout that district. And what was really great also was in that process, he developed um, eight different eight different leaders, indigenous leaders who were able to take on other district adoptions. So from that one district adoption, other adoptions occurred. And I said, well, what are you going to do now, Raju? And you're going to love this, Steve. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to um, the district next door. And I said, well, why are you going to go there? I don't think you know anybody there. And he says, I've heard, he says, I've heard that this district is the epicenter of human trafficking in all of Nepal. That's what I've heard. And he said, except for one of the villages there, and that's the village that has a church. They don't even bother trying to uh, traffic out of there. And he said, so I'm going to eliminate human trafficking through church plant multiplication. That's my plan. Because if that's true, if we multiply churches, they won't try to traffic out of Nepal and they'll run them off. The church will, the traffickers. And I thought that was a, a wonderful vision that that he his envision was actually community transformation, you know, actually running out darkness and evil uh, through the through a healthy local church. And so he's still doing that today. What did you and your family come away with from your time in Nepal? You know, it, it took us away from our forms, the normal forms of church in America, uh, the normal traditions, the normal structures. And it pressed us into the word of God. It pressed us into prayer, it pressed us in reliance on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it was just us, the word of God, and a lot, a lot of lost people that we knew we couldn't reach on our own. So it brought us to the end of ourself. Um, that's precious. I think that have the opportunity to to look at scripture and with that sense of purity and uh, in, in not so many distractions. Um, there were really the hardest things I've ever experienced or ever imagined experience happened in Nepal. Um, we lived through natural, natural disasters, uh, like a major earthquake. Um, uh, we, we experienced uh, a lot of interpersonal conflict that took us to really dark places and was very, very, uh, very hurtful and, and, and still carry wounds to this day. But God was doing something in us the whole time. 
you know, and just to be able to just trust that that God is the major actor in all of this. And you don't have to panic. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be upset. You have to understand that God is doing something. And not just in my life, but in everyone's life that's involved. So just be patient and walk through it. And um, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, we grew as people, but we also, so it's not, a lot of people ask about it. And it's like, well, what did you learn about movements? What did you learn about strategy and all that? And we learned a lot. And we love talking about that. Love talking about, I think what I love talking about more than all of that is, is what God turned us into. You know, he just met, we're just different people, you know, and it's good. And um, I don't know, I hope I'm articulating that well, but it's not just what he does through you. It's what he does in you, man. And, um, and so right now, like my passion is I knew God was calling us, giving us a restlessness to, to trust him and to lay down that calling that we worked so hard for, for so many years. It was like a 20 year saga. Is really what it was from 1999 to 2019. And when we left Nepal, we just announced our organization. We said, hey, I, I've got some good news. Um, God has said it's no place left in the snowflake.